Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Happy February, the uh, hardest month of the year to pronounce, I think. Um, Feb- February, February, like that, that, I don't, it's actually my birthday month, and I, I remember being a child, and it's like, what's your, you know, I'm like learning to read, and you're, you're trying to tell people, like, they say, when's your birthday? And I'm like, February. It's a tough one, right? February. Um, so if it's your first time with us this morning, welcome. Uh, it's actually a good time to join with us because uh, we're starting a new series this morning uh, in the book of Psalms. And yes, the P in Psalms is silent. So uh, if you've ever called them the Psalms, uh, that's okay. Don't shrink back. Don't shy away. You're not the first person to do that, and you won't be the last. It's just a, a, it's a silence. So the word psalm actually just means song. It literally means song. A psalm is a song. And the book of Psalms is a 3,000-year-old collection of Israel's greatest hits. That's what it is. 150 of them. And so they are, they're beautiful. And honestly, I wish I knew which, what they would have sounded like. They were originally set to music. I wish I knew what they sounded like, but we don't know what they sound like. We only have the lyrics now, but the lyrics are plenty. They're beautiful. Um, and and they're, again, they're originally set to music, and they, they were sung as praises and as prayers unto the Lord. And so um, it was actually the Psalms uh, are, are where God really grabbed my attention and I would say even my heart for his word. They, they, they grabbed my heart and soul with his word. And, and I remember um, when I first started reading the Bible, I was having a hard time really kind of just getting into it. It just felt kind of distant and dry. I don't know if that's been your experience. Maybe some of you uh, grew up around it and so you didn't have that sort of barricade, but I, I kind of grew up around it, but not really in it. And it was always kind of distant to me. And then when I started, I came to Jesus and I'm like, man, I want to know his word. I want to get into it. But it kind of felt like there was this barrier there. And um, I had a friend tell me to, uh, that the Psalms were originally written to music. And so he told me to try reading the Psalms while listening to the Gladiator soundtrack. And I did, and whew, give that a shot. They start coming to life, man. Like the words started coming off the page. But even without music, though, these lyrics have a way of drawing you in, right? Because they're, they're relatable to everyday life. It's intentional in that way. And so the truth is the psalmists are actually teaching us how to relate to God, and that's God's desire, is relationship with us. Amen? This is the point. Like, it's all about knowing and enjoying Jesus. It's all about relationship with him. And so this Old Testament collection of praises is one of, the, one of if not, the most practical pathways of experiencing his delight. Like they help us to tap into areas of our lives and emotions and, and articulate areas in our own souls that we may even struggle to identify with ourselves or to even identify, even to come to grips with. Like the Psalms guide us through that rocky terrain of emotion and doubt, faithfulness, faithlessness, and fear. And through triumph and through victory, as well as sorrow and grief. The psalmists guide, 
The Psalms are a collection of these honest prayers unto God, unto the Lord. And so the truth is the Spirit of God often uses uh, these Psalms to help us identify what's going on in our own souls and help us to bring it to the Lord. Have you ever come to the Lord in prayer and just kind of felt overwhelmed? Like maybe you just kind of like, you want to pray, but you don't even know where to begin. Again, there's like a barrier there. You're just overwhelmed with life or, or you just, things just don't seem to click. Most people stop right there and, and they just say, you know, this isn't for me and just move on with life. But if you're human, that's a lie. This is for you. This is what you were made for. You were created for this type of intimacy with the Lord. But the more you avoid it, the more difficult it becomes to even just sit with him and connect with him on a soul level. You might even want to bear your soul before the Lord. This might be your desire to do it, but that's often a lot easier said than done. Because the human soul is elusive. Especially if, you, if, if you've experienced or your soul has even experienced trouble. Like if you've ever spent any time in the woods, you know that like wild animals, they tend to hide when you approach, right? And so you have to sit really still, even in the forest. You just kind of got to quiet down, be very still before those wild animals start to slowly reveal themselves. It's actually one of my favorite things to do is just go out in the forest and just be still. And then all of these, it's like things start suddenly revealing themselves and coming to life. And that's often how our souls can be before the Lord. Like sometimes it takes a while. It can require patient, just sitting and waiting in the Lord's presence before the Lord, before your soul begins to even reveal itself. But this is a necessary part of our relationship with the Lord. This is often what we see happening in scriptures. We see even Jesus doing this type of exercise. Like there's even a Hebrew word for it. It's called Selah, which means pause and pray. Let the Lord uncover and reveal what's needed. And yes, this is where one of my daughters gets her name, Selah. But again, this is a lot easier said than done, right? We talk about authentic relationship with God a lot here, but when, it's, when life is filled with pride and pain and distraction and guilt and shame and anxiety, those pathways to his goodness, they get cluttered. Like weeds just grow up over it. Thorns cover the path. And our souls begin to feel a lot more comfortable in the dark. Even those thorns and weeds and coverings, they tend to be the thing we hide in rather than his presence. And so it's easier to just kind of move on with the busyness of life or, or by just filling ourselves up with information rather than allowing his revelation to engage with us on a deep soul level. And it can be scary. Because when you sit with the Lord, man... It's God of creation. Who knows what he might bring up? And how do you deal with it if he does? And by if, I mean when. And this is where the Lord meets us, even in the Psalms. 
It's been said that while the rest of Scripture speaks to us, the Psalms actually speak for us. And so they help us and even show us how to relate to God, kind of like a divine tracker leading us on the path of life through a wilderness of emotions and desperate circumstances. They draw us in and they guide us through our battles between fear and trust, darkness and light, seasons of feeling God's nearness and seasons where he feels distant. So the Psalms show us the way through. And so so they're not just to be read through or listened to. They're to be prayed through and even sung. See, the soul connection. When you sing something, if you really sing it, there's a soul connection there. There's something powerful that happens. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, we are, in a sense, to put them inside our own prayers. Speaking of the Psalms. We're in a sense to put these psalms inside our own prayers or perhaps to put our prayers inside them and approach God in that way. The psalms lead us to do what the psalmists do. And as we do, the Spirit opens our eyes to see God as he is, not as we thought he was, but as he actually is, as he reveals himself. The psalms also help us to see God God, not as we wish or hope him to be, but as he actually reveals himself. The descriptions of God in the Psalter, which is the Psalms, it's not like the salt and pepper, or it's the Psalter is another word for the Psalms. The descriptions of God in the Psalter are rich beyond human invention. And what we'll find is that he is more holy, more wise, more fearsome, more tender, and more loving than we would ever imagine him to be. The Psalms fire our imaginations into new realms, yet guide them toward the God who actually exists. This brings a reality to our prayer. Or, sorry, it brings a, a reality to our prayer lives that nothing else can. But most of all, the Psalms point us to Jesus. In fact, Jesus quotes from the Psalms more than any other book of the Bible. That's significant. They were Christ's songbook. I would even say they still are, right? And Jesus didn't just sing the Psalms, man. The truth is is that the Psalms sing of Jesus. Because they're all ultimately about him, and they ultimately point us to him, and that's exactly how we're going to begin our series in the book of Psalms, or this collection of Psalms, by letting them point us to Jesus. So we're going to begin our series with Psalm 1. And we're not going to go, we're not, we're not doing a 150-part sermon series, don't worry. We're going to kind of skip around, but we want to start with chapter 1. Because it's important to understand that everything in life, including the Bible, we must see it all through the lens of Jesus Christ. So before we dive into Psalm 1, I want to read from John chapter 15, verse 11, where Jesus summarizes all that he has taught his disciples by saying this. John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. How, God, like how good is that? Don't read over that. It's everything. 
These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Is your joy full this morning? Like, is the joy of Jesus in you this morning? If it's not, I pray you wouldn't leave here without receiving it. So let's look at Psalm 1. We're going to break this psalm down into three main sections and two verses each, and they're going to speak to the joy of the Lord within us. I pray they draw it out of you and, and, and soak you in it. So the first section here, we're calling blessed. The second section is planted. And the third, known. Okay? Blessed, planted, known. And then we're going to close with some practical prayers to help us to receive the joy of Jesus in our own lives. So if you get nothing else from this message this morning, here's what I want you to get. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get. You ready? Christianity isn't about the things we do. It's about a person we enjoy. Christianity is not about the things we do. It's about a person we enjoy. All right, let's dive into the first section here. Blessed. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed. Say blessed. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now last week we looked at a famous passage from number six called the Aaronic Blessing. And here again, in the Old Testament, it's talking about God's blessing. Okay? It's almost like there's this theme in the Bible as if God wants to bless his people to be a blessing or something. And that's because he does. In fact, this entire collection of 150 psalms begins with this powerful word. One word. In Hebrew, it's the word ashrei. Or asher. It literally means happy, blessed, joyful. That's what it means. And yes, this is where my son's name comes from. That's why he's smiling over here. (laughs) It's the, this is the deepest desire and prayer of this father's heart is that my son would be blessed and joyful in the Lord. That that's where he would find true blessing and joy. That the Lord bless him and keep him. That the Lord make his face to shine upon him and be gracious to him. And the Lord would lift up his countenance upon him and give him peace. And hear me, risen church, hear this. This is your heavenly father's deepest desire for you and your children also. And this psalm further fleshes out what that blessing is all about by showing us first what it is not about. Okay? Verse 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Do you see this? I want you to image this. Get, it, get this. Imagine this. Get this image in your head. 
You see this downward spiral here, beginning with walking and then standing and then sitting. It illustrates the cursed life rather than the blessed life. It shows us what weakness looks like rather than strength. To walk, stand, sit. It begins with walking and then you stand and then you sit with such people And to do that is to share their values, to associate and eventually even identify with those who reject the blessings of God with their lifestyle and take up residence then with the scoffer. The end state of the scoffers is the scoffer's seat. The end state is that scoffer's seat and few things in wisdom literature of the Bible are more reviled by God than the scoffer. The image here is of a miserable and wretched place of scorn and curse, not blessing. Always the victim, always the critic, always the grumbler. That's not what I desire for my children. And that is not what the Father desires for you. So that's what the blessed life does not look like. (laughs) So what does it look like? Verse 2, but his delight, say delight, is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, when I first read this years and years ago, man, I got to be honest with you, it it didn't sound very joyful to me, right? Like, honestly, when I first read this, I'm like, so to be blessed means I just read the Bible all day? Is that what it is that what it's saying? Like I'm supposed to just study the law day and night? Like that's the blessed life? Like I just am like a, I'm supposed to be just a monk, a hermit. And I was like, God, like I don't want wickedness. I want righteousness. Like I even I I, I love your word. I, I I love these things, but Leviticus wasn't exactly ringing my bell of delight. Right? Now the more I've taken in the full counsel of God, I actually love Leviticus. I do. It's amazing. I love numbers and a lot of the things I used to get bogged down by. And I'm like, oh, man, this is like a grind. Now I see it and it's come to life and it's beautiful and it's amazing. But the truth is, hear me, guys, hear me. The truth is God's law in itself isn't really super delightful to a fallen people. In fact, that journey into scorn and scoffing is often a journey of reacting to our inability to live up to God's law. God's law in itself is actually a proof of failure. The more you study the law of God, like I mean really study it, the more you realize you deserve eternal damnation. This is why in order to really understand the Old Testament, you got to view it through the lens of the New Testament. Because the law was given to show us our need for a Savior. Listen to me, Risen. You will never love God by simply focusing on God's law alone. God's law takes us to the end of ourselves. It shows us how wretched we are. Live there, and you will confess, but you'll never repent. And then you'll never really live and believe. 
Unless, of course, you're comparing yourself to those you deem more wretched than yourself, which is why religious people tend to be so judgmental. It's the torment of living on that pride-shame spectrum. This is why Jesus told the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verse 39 through 40, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. In 2 Corinthians 3, 6, the Apostle Paul tells us, We've been made sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And yet, it's clear that King David is singing about his delight in God's law here. Like, how? Like, how, how is that even possible? Especially since we know that David is a messed up man. The King David did some jacked up stuff. He didn't just break God's law. He broke it wide open. We'll get into that later in our series as we go. But God's law condemned David to eternal damnation. How is it that he delights in it? The answer is because he's received God's love for him. Even in the midst of his own sinfulness, he's received God's love and his salvation, and it changes him. He doesn't take it for granted. It's just the opposite. It marks him. It identifies him. It even sets him apart from those that do take it for granted. Psalm 4, verse 3. This is King David speaking. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Now, that word there for godly is the Hebrew word hasid, which is the adjective, or, sorry, adjective form of hesed. Okay? It's a Hebrew word. And that is my favorite word in Hebrew because it's the word that David and the psalmist often use over and over again throughout the scriptures or throughout the psalms and even the Old Testament to, to describe or speak of God's unconditional, unrelenting, never-ending, steadfast love and kindness towards his people. I've told you before, I memorized it by saying, he, he, said, he said he loved me and he meant it. So this term here is he is he's taking it as a descriptive term of his life. He's receiving that his said. And he uses this rendering of his said as an adjective to describe those who have genuinely laid hold of God's steadfast love over their individual and personal life. It's like personally and individually ratifying and receiving the covenant that God's offered to you. This is what makes David a man after God's own heart, as he's described in both the Old and New Testament. It's not his moral perfection. It's his reception of God's perfect love and grace. This is the source of his joy, and this is the source of his delight in the ways and word and law of God. It's no longer about him. It's about the Lord. And as he beholds the Lord, he beholds the love of God, and it just is this cycle of worship and praise and goodness. 
and, he, and even and especially when he falls short. It's about the love of God. Psalm 4, verse 6 through 7. Puts it like this. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. You see, David's love for God and, and God's law is born of God's love for him. 1 John 4, 19 says this, We love because he first loved us. So the, law, the, the, the law of God alone will cause you to shrink back from God. It will even spark eventual resentment or pride or shame, and it will lead you down the path of the wicked sinner scoffer. And remember, David is talking about God's covenant people here. He's not just talking about the nations in Psalm 1 here. He's talking about God's covenant people. He's talking about those God has extended his covenant to, but they've rejected it. He's offered them his said, but instead they chose their own way, either because they think his way is too much or not enough. Either way, this is a trust issue. See, love for the law will never ignite a love for God because if you just love the law, all you really love is how well you live up to the law, which is really just pride. And that goes before the fall. And it's a fearful and tormented way to live. But when you trust in the Lord, when you receive first his love, then you'll begin to fall in love with his law even and his word, and his ways, and his perfect love then resides even within you. 1 John 4.18 puts it like this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. See, that's what set David apart. He was a man after God's own heart. Throughout the Psalms, David's going to declare the hesed of God, the unconditional, unrelenting, steadfast love and kindness of the Lord over his life, the kind of love that endures forever. But without it, you become the scoffer. I recently heard a pastor named Jack Deere speak about the, his early days as a Christian. And he didn't know anything about the Bible. He didn't grow up in church and, and, or even around it. And he became a Christian, though, when he was 17 years old. And he just threw himself into the study of God's Word so thoroughly that within the next 10 years, he'd actually become a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary as a 27-year-old. That's pretty impressive, right? Or at least it sounds impressive, on the surface, but Jack actually says that becoming a professor at that early age was the worst thing that happened to his spiritual life. He said he felt so proud and superior because he thought that the most important thing in life was just knowing Scripture. And it led him into a period where his heart grew hard and cold. To him, the most important thing in life was studying the Bible, not prayer, not worship. The most important thing to him was how much he knew. He said, 
And I quote, if you asked me about loving God during those days, I would have told you that loving God meant obeying God. But really, loving God meant studying Scripture, because if you study Scripture, then you're spending time with God, right? You spend time with people you love. Therefore, studying the Bible is the way we express our love to God. That's where his head was. But his heart was becoming harder and harder toward God and people. He didn't really even believe God was an interactive God. He had a small category for it, sure, but really all that supernatural stuff was distant, you know, like back then stuff, not for today. When it came to praying for people, he sort of reasoned that you can if you want, but I mean, nothing's going to probably happen. Then Jack met some brothers who challenged him to be praying for the sick, and he starts to see God move in these miraculous ways and, and then he said he sees these miraculous things happening through, through these prayers and then he, he says though that the best thing about encountering these things was coming back into contact with the person and presence of God not just knowledge about God but knowledge of God And the fact that God really wanted him to feel his affection, and he wanted Jack to love him. The reality is the Bible itself is not our source. It points us to the source, which is God himself, and it helps us to know what is the source and what is not. Amen? But this this isn't about knowing about God. This is about knowing and interacting with God. Tapping into the very source of living water, which is his spirit and his presence through reliant prayer and grateful praise and a lifestyle of worship. And guys, when that happens, delight happens. On to the next section. Psalm 1-3. Planted. Verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. This is what true strength and security looks like. Get the image. Imagine the tree. Imagine the waters. Imagine the fruit. Imagine the leaves. Imagine the flourishing. Even though We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's through the love of God and the grace of Jesus Christ that we're able to access the waters, the living waters of his spirit. And it's having our roots deeply saturated in his spirit that produces fruit. And then our leaf doesn't wither. It's evergreen. Now I want you to think about these images. Again, who who does a tree bear fruit for? Think about that. Who does a tree bear fruit for? Is it for itself or for others? Right? Like even the significance of leaves on a tree throughout the Bible is a picture of covering, refuge, safety to hide from the scorching sun. So the imagery is saying that by tapping into the living waters of the Spirit of God, we are blessed to be a blessing others. We're not just focused on being fed by the fruit of others or finding refuge in the shade of others. Our security and relationship with God himself provides fruit for those around us 
and even a refuge. And listen, our delight is not in our own fruit. Our delight is in the living waters of his spirit. You may go through seasons where there's no fruit. And if there's no fruit, then you're like, oh, wait a minute. I must be hated by God or I must not be good enough. If your motivation for loving God is how awesome and fruitful you are at doing it, then you're going to get sucked right back into that pride-shame lifestyle. And it's tormenting. The fruit is is good. Praise God for the fruit, but it's not our ultimate delight. Our ultimate delight is not our fruitfulness. It's just a symptom of it. He is our delight. He, his spirit is our delight. Jesus is our delight. In Luke 10, verse 20, Jesus' disciples kind of came into contact with this principle. Um, They come back from their first commission, and they're pumped up, man, because of how fruitful their ministry was. Praise God, right? They're amazed because even the demons were were subject to them in the name of Jesus. And Jesus confirms and affirms their fruit, right? That's awesome. But then he says, In Luke 10, verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, don't just delight in what you've done for the Lord. Delight in what he's done for you. That's the source. He is the source root plant into him and what he has done not into yourself and what you can or cannot do look look at psalm 1 verse 4 the wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away when the wheat is threshed right it's the outer husk that blows away with the wind not the grain which is connected or abiding The outer husk may have the appearance of being connected, but it's just outward. When the wind comes or when things get rattled or shaken, it's clear that the husk isn't rooted into the branch. It's just kind of been associating with it, but it's not tapped into the true source of nourishment. So it blows away with the wind like a worthless shell with no real substance. Like the lampstands of Revelation that symbolized particular churches, some of them had no oil in them. Oil represents the Holy Spirit. And without oil, there can be no flame. And so Jesus just removes these lampstands because they weren't empty, or sorry, they were empty, they weren't filled with the Spirit, and they were providing no real life and light. They had no true intimacy with his Spirit, and he removes them. Having the appearance of godliness, they denied its power. The power is in the relationship. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Amen? On to section three. Known. Say known. Psalm 1, verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There's no delight there. 
just scorn and scoff. And that path, that, that, that way, it, it leads to destruction. It, it, and it's destructive not only to themselves, but also to people around them. But listen to me. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Somebody say, God knows. See, the word for know here is the Hebrew word yada. And it's not just the word for knowing about someone. It's also the word used for the way a man knows a woman on their wedding night. You think about that. Like this is a term of deep intimacy and delight. Isaac took Rebekah into his tent and knew her. Right? Listen to the words of Jesus. Hear the reason for his words and his laws and his precepts. Hear the why behind the what for the word of God. John chapter 15 I'm going to start actually with verse 9 to bring you the full context of this. Verse 9, it says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Guys, this is the lens through which we must understand the entire Bible. Like if you want to know what the Psalms are talking about, look at them through the lens of the new covenant in Christ. Look at them through the gospel glasses that you've been given in Jesus. Remember John verse 1 through 17 through 18. It tells us this. For the law was given through Moses... Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him, ready, known. So if you want to know what King David's talking about when he's talking about delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating on it day and night, He's talking about abiding in the person and presence of God, which is more available to us now in the new covenant, right, than it ever was in the old because his spirit has now been poured out upon all flesh. This is the most glorious truth in all of eternity, guys. He's removed hard hearts of stone and given us new hearts and put his spirit within us just as he promised he would in Ezekiel 36. The old man, bound by the law, has been given a new heart and a new spirit in Christ. This is the gospel. God became a man, and he lived the life we couldn't live, and he died the death we deserved to die, and he conquered sin and death and the grave through the resurrection, paving the way to eternal life, filling us with the Spirit, paving, us, paving the way to eternal life with God, relationship with the Father. And it's a relationship and an eternal life that doesn't start one day when we die. It begins the moment you place your faith and your hope in what Christ did for you. Eternal life begins now. Like we love God because he first loved us. And when we love God, we love his ways. 
We delight in his character and his goodness and his word, but most of all, we delight in him. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. This is what grace is all about. But listen to me, even grace is not the point. The concept of theological construction of grace is not the point. You know what it is? What you get because of it. You know what you get because of it? Jesus. Jesus is the point. Grace is the avenue through which we access the ultimate blessing. It's himself. Everything else is a fruitful overflow. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And what does he command? Receive his love and love others with it. That's his law. That's the law of love, and that's what it's all about. And when you and others fall short of that, when you and others fall short of that, offer grace, receive grace, and keep going after Jesus because you're not labeled by it. Or at least you don't have to be. Verse 15. One of the most profound passages in the entire Bible. You ready? No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. The Greek there is doulos. Some translations say servants. Some translations say slaves. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Don't gloss over this. Jesus is no longer calling you a servant slave, but a friend. The flesh actually loves rules and being told what to do because it gives it something to boast in and control. But Jesus' commands are about love and relationship, a change of heart, not just behavior. Like when you think of Jesus... How does your inner man respond? Do you think about what you should or have to do or else? Or do you think, God, he's so good. You, I, I, you're worth it. Like this is where our service to him actually comes from. A change of heart and love. Like when you think about Jesus, how does your inner man respond? Do you become proud of yourself in comparison to the world around you? Or maybe ashamed? Or do you light up with thoughts of the lover and savior of your soul? I love how Jonathan Edwards reflects on Jesus. He wrote this. Sometimes only mentioning a single word will cause my heart to burn within me. 
Only seeing the name of Christ or some attribute of God will suddenly make my heart burn. And God suddenly appears glorious to me, making me have exalting thoughts of him. When I enjoy this sweetness, it seems to carry me above the thoughts of my own estate. It seems that at such times, I'm at such a loss that I cannot bear it, and I cannot bring myself to take my eye from this glorious present object to turn it to myself or to my interest. The famous reformer from the 16th century, Martin Luther, he wrote about his obsession over his spiritual state before God, describing his experience as with, or, or with the German word, um, I'm, I'm going to try this one, unthink. On, on fectun. That's it. On fectun. I'm not German. That's tough. But it's translated as inner fight. He's describing the way he obsessed over his spiritual state before God, does this inner fight or this extreme anxiety, maybe even depression, and it came from thinking he was rejected or not fully accepted by God. He desperately wanted to know that he was right with God and, he, and, and that he wouldn't go to hell. So he began to do everything that he could do to try to gain assurance of his approval. He would fast for days on end. He would sleep on the floor. He would spend hours in confession trying to remember all his sins because according to what he was taught, in order for a sin to be forgiven, it had to be confessed. And he wanted to remember every single one of them. And so he would beat himself with a whip as a way of trying to show God that he was sorry. The church at that time had actually set up rules that went beyond what the Bible actually taught, not unlike the Pharisees did in the Gospels. And they taught that all these things were necessary in order to help make you right with God. But Luther wondered, how could he know that he had done enough? And when he did feel like he had actually covered them all, he felt pride at having accomplished it. He said that trying to remember every sin in confession was like trying to mop up the floor with the faucet running. He eventually learned to read the Bible in the original languages, and as he did, he started to see things that at first confused, but then delighted him. For example, the first book he taught from was the book of Psalms. He came to Psalm 22, where David cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? which is a prophecy about what Jesus would one day pray from the cross. And Luther said, this is how I feel. Like abandoned by God. But why would Jesus ever feel like that? Like why would Jesus ever articulate that? And there Luther said, I first began to understand the concept of Jesus in my place. Jesus experienced the judgment and separation I deserved. By the way, this is where we get our four-word summary for the gospel. You hear me say it all the time, Jesus in my place. Then he started teaching Romans, but he couldn't get out of chapter one. <laughs> right? He couldn't get past the phrase, the righteousness of God. It troubled him. Luther writes this. He says, I had been taught to understand the righteousness of God as the righteousness with which God punishes the unrighteous sinner. Thus, I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat relentlessly upon Paul at that verse, most earnestly desiring to know what St. Paul wanted from me. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, it, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who through faith 
is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. In other words, in other words, the righteousness of God that Paul speaks of is not a standard we have to live up to, but his righteousness that God gives to us as a free gift in Christ when we receive him. So it wasn't about Luther confessing enough or feeling sorry enough or beating himself enough. Jesus had done enough. It is finished. Jesus had lived the life. He had done everything in our place. Luther says, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. This was rebirth. This was his acceptance by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as a friend, not just a servant or a slave. The result was the Protestant Reformation. It set a fire of renewal within the church, and it's changed the course of history. This is where true delight begins, guys. This morning, perhaps you're saying, you know, I want to feel this way about God. Right? Like you wanted to lighten in his word and his spirit to receive his friendship and even to become best friends with Jesus the way the Apostle John spoke of his relationship with him. Over and over again, he talks about himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved or the beloved disciple. He was known as Jesus' best friend. I, I love that. Like I love how he describes himself this way. He had this special relationship with Jesus and he wanted everybody to know that it's also available to you. Like, you can be best friends with Jesus, the author and creator of the universe. But what if you don't care? What if your, your heart is cold? Listen to me. The Bible tells us that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. That means he's overflowing with grace for those who come to him with need. Like, he doesn't turn away the broken. He doesn't turn away those crying out to him for mercy. A contrite heart he will not despise. The question, though, is, will you come to him? The truth is, he's come to you. The truth is, he stands at the door of our hearts and knocks. Will you let him in? Would you pray and ask him to be your friend? If that feels too lofty for you, you've not fully understood the cross and resurrection. Stand upon that. Would you pray and ask him to be your friend? Would you even pray and ask him to be your best friend? To warm your affections and your delight, not just for your knowledge about him, but your knowledge of him, because that's where the blessing and the joy is. Like that's how his joy gets in you, and that's how your joy becomes full. I'm not just talking about to the lost. I'm not talking about just this to lost people. I'm talking about this is for the religious, not just the lost. A.W. Tozer once prayed this. I love this. I love Tozer. I love, I love this prayer. He says, Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, I want to want thee. 
I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made thirstier still. Give me grace to rise up and follow thee. Maybe that's your prayer this morning. I want to want you. It's a good prayer. I want to love you not just as a servant, but as a friend. There's a big difference between serving someone you have to and serving someone you enjoy. Jack Deere said the key to life is feeling the affection of Jesus and enjoying him, feeling his pleasure in us. A friend of God is someone who enjoys God. Best friendship is about the pleasure and enjoyment we feel when we're with them. It's not a slavery-servant relationship. It's a friendship. Your main identity in Christ is not as a servant, but as a friend. Now, we will operate as servants to him. Again, slavery-servant, that word is doulos, and it's a word that we see in Scripture. You read it earlier, that we are slaves to righteousness. We are servants of righteousness, right? But you can't serve righteousness if you're not operating out of your source. Jack even gives us three prayers that have helped him. And I believe they'll help us too in growing closer in our friendship with God. The first prayer. Lord, let me be one of your best friends. Like This is how we yoke ourselves to the king. With our hearts. Lord, let me be one of your best friends. Just saying that, man, I can feel a sense of coldness in my heart just melt. Like, what do you want to be known for? Like, when all is said and done, I pray that the legacy of this church would be that we were Christ's best friends. Amen? Anybody else? Two. Lord, let me feel your affection today. It's a good prayer. It's a good prayer. Again, there's a huge difference between knowing a theological fact and experiencing the affection of someone. And then lastly, the last prayer comes straight out of Psalm 27.4, and I could preach this for another hour, but I'm not going to. It's a psalm of David, the man after God's own heart, and it says this, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Christianity isn't about the things we do. It's about a person we enjoy. I'm going to close here with a quote from the church father Tertullian. And he says this, just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is ever crucified between two opposite errors. There are two robbers who lay essentially alongside that path, that gospel path of everlasting life, and they steal from its joy. On one side is legalism, or moralism, and on the other side, it's license or taking grace for granted. Both steal from joy. Both are thieves. In Christ alone is true joy and true blessing are found. May we neither take away from him or try to add anything to him, but simply delight in him. Let's pray.